We continue our worship service now by looking to the Word of God. And if you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to Luke chapter 22, uh, verses 39 through 46. Luke 22, verse 39 through 46. Uh, because the passage is relatively short, uh, I'd like to oh, we'll actually read the whole uh, passage this morning before our, the sermon. Luke 22, verse 39 through 46. And he came out and proceeded, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples also followed him. When he arrived at the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. When he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow, and said to them, Why are you sleeping? Get up and pray, that you may not enter into temptation. Let's go Lord, in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, for these are the words of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And these are his words before he heads to the cross. Help us, Lord, to understand this passage, understand what Christ says to his disciples, understand its application, its implications for us today. Lord, teach us, even in, in, as response to your word, to be men and women of prayer, prayer, to be a church that prays. God, thank you, Lord, that we have this free access to your throne in the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us not to um, take it for granted or to ignore it even, but to consider the treasure and the power and the, and the freedom that we have and that we would avail ourselves of that which is treasure indeed. A relationship with you then where we can commune with our almighty creator because of Jesus. We thank you, Father, for Jesus. And thank you for this time of worship and your word. May you cause us to be men and women of prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When we think about Jesus, our Savior, our thoughts uh, normally and rightly turn to the cross because that is where Jesus bore the wrath of God for our sins. It's, the, it's really, when we think about Jesus, we always talk about the cross of Christ. It's where Jesus died for our sins. And in his agonizing death, he suffered the punishment due to us for our sins. 
There he would cry out in agony on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you think about it, the cross would be the greatest trial that Jesus would ever face in his life on earth. And we wonder, how could he endure this great trial? Well, to understand how he could understand, to endure that great, this greatest trial of his life involves understanding today's passage. It's because of his relationship that he has with God the Father. Prior to his betrayal, arrest, trials, and crucifixion, Jesus spends his final free moments praying to the Father. This passage records for us the, the actions and words of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. Profoundly, this passage speaks much to Christ's character, to his servant's heart, to his submissive, submissiveness and willingness to suffer and sacrifice for the sins of mankind in obedience to the Father. And just as Jesus receives strength to endure his, in his impending suffering on the cross, so his followers, so you and I, throughout the ages, uh, like others throughout the ages, have found in these verses strength to endure the trials that we face today. This passage provides much practical application. Uh, it's for Christians who find themselves in times of great distress, great temptation, great trials. And as we learn about our Savior's heart, uh, as he approaches the cross, we learn what will strengthen our own hearts as we bear our own crosses in this life for Jesus. It centers around, this passage centers around Jesus' prayer to his Heavenly Father. And Jesus' prayer in the face of his impending death provide for us three encouragements for his disciples to pray. His prayer encourages us in three ways, or three kind of, uh, three aspects of his prayer of this passage three, provide three encouragements for us to pray today. So uh, this passage, if you kind of, as we outline it, it's a, technically it has a, what's called a chiastic structure, okay? And that means it's like a X structure, but I, I simply like to say it's a sandwich structure. It's like a sandwich. Uh, if you have a, a sandwich, you have uh, the, the top and the bottom are uh, basically two pieces of white bread, and in the middle is where the, the good stuff is. No, not the vegetables, the meat, where the meat is, right? Uh, it's the meat. That's the most important part. And in this passage, the first and the third points are kind of the, are, are essentially similar. They're similar points, but the focus of the passage is in that middle where the meat is, where Jesus' prayer is in, is where we see his particular prayer. And that's the main focus for us today. And so let's, we'll look at this passage, three, uh, three parts of Jesus' prayer that give us encouragement, I guess, for his disciples to pray. And so, first of all, is the, the call to pray, the call to prayer, and that is in verses 39 to 40. And we read that he, that is Jesus, came out and proceeded, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. So he, he came out of the upper room in Jerusalem, and he was, as his kind of proceeding to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples also followed him. When he arrived at the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Uh, when we look at the, the parallel accounts, Luke, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Luke's account of this prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane is actually the shortest. If you read Matthew or, get your, or read, read uh, Mark's account, you'll find that, oh, there's a lot more detail in Matthew and Mark's. But that doesn't mean that Luke doesn't have some unique details as well. He does. But Luke tends to summarize a lot of the things that happened in the Garden. So this is almost like a summary of what took place. Um, 
Matthew and Mark provides much greater detail, particularly surrounding Jesus' exchange with his disciples. Whereas Luke sort of almost completely minimizes that and just summarizes all in like one or two sentences. Instead, Luke's focus, what he does in effect is he focuses on what's in the middle. That is Jesus' prayer. And Luke tells us that it was uh, Jesus' custom to proceed to the Mount of Olives during his week in Jerusalem, his final week in Jerusalem. Every day he was in Jerusalem teaching the temple, cleansing the temple on the first day. And he was confronting leaders and being confronted by leaders. And in the evening, uh, he would get away from all the crowds. He would go with disciples to back to the Mount of Olives where he would spend time either discussing with them, personal discussions with them, resting with them, and even and most likely praying along with them. Uh, Matthew and Mark tells us that this, this place that he arrived at is called Gethsemane. Matthew and Mark tells us it's Gethsemane. Uh, it's an Aramaic ter- term that means an oil press. John, in John's Gospel, John 18, uh, tells us that the location was a garden. So he doesn't use Gethsemane, he just says it was a garden. And so we have come today to just simply call it the Garden of Gethsemane, somewhere uh, near or on the Mount of Olives. And this was a place for Jesus and disciples to get away from the crowd so that they could rest uh, and pray. It would be the same place on this night where Judas would betray Jesus with a kiss. On this night, though, before all of that, Jesus calls his disciples to pray. And he says, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus will repeat this command uh, later on in the passage. But interestingly, Luke, uh, in contrast to Matthew and Mark, is the only one that actually records this first instruction to pray that they might enter into uh, temptation. And so this is in this uh, call to prayer that we find here in verse, 30, 30, verse 40, we can make several observations, uh, three observations, I believe. First of all, the call to pray is a command. Jesus commands and he says, pray. And it's, a, not a merely, it's not a mere instruction to pray, but it's an imperative to pray. It's a command. Uh, Jesus had instructed his disciples many times about prayer, and it was implied that in the instruction that, uh, that pe- his people should be people of prayer. Uh, he had modeled it for them regularly throughout his life. Uh, we see this in, uh, back in Luke 5, 16, 9, 18, 9, 28, 11, 1, all different places where Jesus went on, spent time to pray. Jesus also taught them how to pray from 11 2 and uh, following, that uh, the Lord's Prayer, remember that? He taught them of persistence in prayer in chapter 18, verse 1, teaching them a parable of the, the importunate uh, widow. He taught them of the priority of prayer in 1946, saying, My house is to be a house of prayer. Only once before in, in all of Luke did Jesus actually command his disciples to pray. It was back in chapter 6, verse 28, when he commanded them to pray for those who mistreat you, to pray for your enemies in essence. But now for a second time, Jesus commands his disciples to pray. And there is an, and, and this, so this command gives a sense of an urgency to them. That's an imperative uh, to cause them at this point, right now, you need to be praying. But this time, which is our second observation, he notice he doesn't call them to pray for others, but he calls them to pray for themselves. Specifically, that they are to pray for themselves that they may not enter into temptation. Now, this is particularly in light of what we had just uh, learned about in, previous, uh, in the previous verses, where Jesus had shared with his disciples in the upper room that one of his disciples, one of you, he said, 
one of you who are sharing this bread with me on this table is going to actually betray me. That is, he's going to hand him over to the Gentiles, to the, to the religious leaders. He's going to betray him, essentially, to his death. What's more, he's revealed that Peter, though he says, I'm going to go with you to prison and to death, he actually tells Peter, um, you're actually going to fail me and forsake me. Jesus' words indicated to them that though they may not know exactly what was going to take place in that evening, that something big was about to happen. Something that involved betrayal. Something that involved disciples fleeing, forsaking. Something that involved disciples facing the sifting like wheat by Satan. Jesus had told them this, was ha this would happen. And, he, they, and even... Uh, even before all that would happen, Jesus understands that they will be tempted to flee. They will be tempted even to flee and never come back, to forsake the Lord. What's more, even Peter later on is going to be tempted to, instead of, uh, instead of uh, standing by Jesus, he's going to try to kill for Jesus. As you know, he takes up the sword later on in chapter 20, uh, later on in the, uh, later on in the uh, chapter. In any case, to resist temptation prayer is needed among the disciples. And so our third observation is that Jesus therefore calls in light of what's going to take place for, to Peter and the disciples this evening, he calls them to pray, he commands them to pray, he calls them to pray for themselves, and he calls them to a continual prayer. This is our third observation, third point. It's a continual prayer. The present tense of the verb indicates this is an ongoing prayer uh, this evening. It's not just to be, uh, offer up a quick one-time prayer, a, a Hail Mary kind of prayer. Luke doesn't highlight this, of course, uh, but emphasized by Mark is that three times Jesus exhorts the disciples to keep watch and pray. Keep watch and pray. That is, along with prayer is the sense that why do you need to keep uh, praying? It's because there's needs, a watchfulness is needed. Watchfulness, because danger is coming. And so you need to, if you knew there was going to be a robber who's going to come to break your house, you don't, you don't say, well, okay, I'm, I'm just going to turn on my alarm system and then go to sleep. If you knew a robber was coming, you know you turn on the alarm system, you turn on your lights, you'd go get your bat, uh, and, and, and you would stand ready at, throughout the night because you know that a robber is coming. Satan is coming to sift you like wheat, and Jesus tells them, keep watching and praying. Three times he tells them that if, if we looked at Matthew and Mark. There's a watchfulness is necessary for temptation that is about to come upon them. And he, so he commands them with this present tense verb it, and to continually be in prayer. What we see and we're reminded here is that the only means of grace to avoid temptation, brothers and sisters, is through continual dependence upon God in prayer. Remember what he taught them in the Lord's Prayer back in 11, chapter 11, verse 4? And lead us not into temptation. We need to be praying continually to ask the God Father to help protect us, to lead us not into temptation, deliver us from temptation. Jesus called his disciples here to pray in these uh, first two verses in encouragement for us today. In this life, all of us are going to encounter various trials that test our faith and even tempt us to forsake the Lord. Sometimes it may feel like you're even alone in your trial, like no one else is wrestling with what you wrestle with. But we know what the scripture teaches, that no temptations overcome you, but such as is common to man. And we know that God is faithful to provide the way of escape, even in the midst of our temptation. By the way, it's 1 Corinthians 10, 13. But we will only find that way of escape through dependence upon him. As you pray, 
And part of prayer is, is prayerfully reflecting God's truths back to him. We reflect and recall scripture. We reflect what God says, what God promises, what God commands. And as we pray those things back to the Lord, oh Lord, I know your will of God is my sanctification. Oh Lord, I know that your word tells me that I need to trust in you with all my heart. And we know that in my weakness, I know that I can depend upon you for strength. We need to ask God for grace to obey him as we reflect upon scriptures as we come to the Lord in prayer. And the Lord will always hear the prayer that is according to his will, according to 1 John 5, 14. So what Jesus asked his disciples here is to pray. He calls his disciples to pray, and he calls his disciples to pray today. We may not be, we may not be having Satan at our door. We're looking to sift us like wheat. But nevertheless, temptation remains in our world. Temptation affects all of us. And in order to resist that temptation, nor that we may not fall into temptation, we need to pray. But what Jesus asks his disciples, Jesus himself exemplifies in his own life. And in the second and primary point of this passage, we see Jesus' own prayer to the Father. And this is, I would call this the example to pray, the example to pray in verses 41 through 44. Let me read verses 41 to 42 for us. And, and he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. The example of Jesus is so compelling here. If the Lord Jesus Christ turns to the Father in prayer in the face of his greatest trial, how much more his followers? If Jesus chose to pray, how much you and me ought to pray? And perhaps what is most remarkable here is, when we look at this passage, is the distress and anguish in Jesus' prayer. In the few verses later, we're going to see that there's agony in this prayer. And what we realize is that as we read this prayer, sometimes we know that Jesus is the Son of God, but it's easy to forget that Jesus is also the Son of Man, that he is a human being. And we see Jesus' humanity reflected in this prayer. Know that all his disciples are with him in the garden. Jesus prays alone with the Father. This is something he's always done. He's prayed alone with the Father. He withdraws from them about a stone's throw, it's, uh, several yards, it says, it's uh, believed. Perhaps even just out of earshot. And notice his posture. He, he kneels down to pray. In the Hebrew culture, it was customary to pray, uh, while they, uh, to, to pray standing, while they're standing. Uh, but Mark and Matthew record that Jesus, in fact, fell to the ground. There's a, there's a sense of like anguish as he falls, a weakness. There's, a, there's a, a, just a, a, a overwhelming sorrow, something that strikes him that he, that he can't help but just fall upon his knees before the Father. The posture reflects both his anguish but also his humility before God. Even the tenses of the, here, the verb pray and saying indicate that Jesus' prayer, just like as a model for us, was an ongoing prayer. It wasn't just a one-time prayer. In fact, he was continually praying this. In truth, from Matthew's account, we do see that Jesus actually repeated his prayer at least three times in Matthew 26, verse 39, 42, and 44. Apparently, what Luke does here again is he's summarizing. He's summarizing for us Jesus' prayer. Not only did this was something that Jesus 
continually prayed that evening. And Jesus' prayer reveals to us the heart of our Savior, doesn't it? It reveals to us a man who prays, although he is the Son of God, he is also the Son of Man. Although he is divine, yet he's also human. And in the face of great immense trials, he is just like us, that he, it is easy to be, feel the overwhelming burden of the trials. It is this overwhelming desire that, I, Lord, it is possible, help, help deliver me from this trial. I don't want to be in trial. Jesus does not have a, a death wish. He wants to live. And he feels the weight that is coming before uh, this, this uh, that is upon him. There are four parts to Jesus' prayer. And we'll look at these a little more in depth, his prayer in depth. Four parts to his prayer that provide our insight into our Savior in the face of suffering. First, you notice he addresses God as Father. He says, Father, Father. Yeah, this is a Greek pater. Uh, Aramaic would be Abba. Abba. It's simply the name that little children would call their father. We translate it, it's translated father here, but it has the sense of like, whatever your children call you, dads, that's the idea. It's, it's that term that they're familiar with. They call you probably dad, pop, papa. You know, that whatever it is, they, there's that term that they call you, and when you hear it, you know that it reflects this relationship, that no other kids would call you that. But these, your kids call you that. It's, it conveys this relationship that you have with them. And interestingly, when Jesus prays Father, it was in contrast to the Jewish people in that day that they did not address God as Father. Even when he taught this to his disciples in, back in chapter 11, to address God as our Heavenly Father, that was very unique. Not that they didn't see God as a, as a Father in some sense, but they just did not address God as Father in their prayers. But Jesus expresses his unconditional faith in the Father, his trust in the Father, with whom he shares this father-son relationship. And as those who believe in Christ, when we pray, we, like Jesus, can say, Dear Father, our Heavenly Father, because we too have a father-child relationship when, as those who are adopted in Christ Jesus. We can trust him like a child does our father. And just like our children uh, cry out to us when they are hurting or when they're suffering, when they bump, scratch their knee, bump their head, so Jesus, because of this father-son relationship, cries out to his father in the face of his greatest trial and suffering. His thoughts immediately turn to his father as the cross looms ahead. Secondly, notice that Jesus appeals to God the Father's sovereign will, His Father's sovereign will. If you are willing, Father. Jesus knows that if God wills something to happen, then He can make it happen. The phrase is a reminder to us of what uh, Luke records elsewhere, back in Luke 18, 27, that what is impossible with men is possible with God. In fact, Mark's parallel records Jesus saying this, that he says, just before he asked him to remove the cup, he says, all things are possible for you. This is Mark 14, 36. So Jesus approaches God because he is his father and because his father is sovereign. His father's in control of all things. And he knows that whatever is affecting, whatever is bothering him, whatever is burning him, he can bring it to the father. 
Whatever is affecting you, whatever is bothering you, if you remember that God is sovereign, you can bring it to him. What use would it be to go to someone who is powerless to do anything about it? We want to be able to go to someone who actually can make change. And God the Father is the only one who can affect change. We know that when we come to him, we know that he's all-powerful. And it's because Jesus knows that God is omnipotent and sovereign that he makes this request. Father, if you are willing, the request in this third point, he prays, remove this cup from me. This is our third note. In this request, remove this cup from me, we, we see uh, more formally the humanity of Jesus. In his humanity, Jesus sought from God a way out of his trial. He wanted to get out of this trial. He did not want to remain under this trial. It was a suffering that as he reflected upon it, as he, he, he knew it was coming. Many times he had told disciples, it is, I'm going to Jerusalem and there I'm going to be handed over to, uh, to the chief priests and scribes. He's, he knows his death is coming. But he prays nevertheless, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. And this picture of a cup, uh, even the most recent kind of in, in our in Gospel of Luke, the last time he spoke about a cup, remember, was in the, in the Passover meal, the Last Supper, where he took that cup, that third cup in the Passover meal, and he transformed it. He said, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The cup would resemble his sacrifice, his blood, his, his death on the cross. And Jesus knew that his death would ratify the new covenant blessings of forgiveness and eternal life and salvation. Not only, though, did it mean the suffering of death on the cross for Jesus, but it meant so much more, that cup. It's not just his death on the cross, that the, really his physical death, but mostly and more importantly and more profoundly, it meant the suffering that he would experience of God's wrath and abandonment upon Jesus, of Jesus on the cross. And for Jesus, as he reflects, the one who's always had a relationship with God the Father, even in his earthly tent, he could have this relationship where he communed with God the Father, would know that when very soon all of the sins of mankind would be poured to placed upon Jesus, he would become sin on our behalf, and God's wrath would be poured out upon Jesus in its full, in infinite wrath, and all, and in that moment where God's wrath is poured out for all our sins, Jesus would be abandoned by the Father, and so much that he would say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That is an agony that you and I will never understand. But Jesus understood this was coming, and he prays, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. The thought of bearing the sins of mankind on the cross and suffering the full wrath of God for the sin was so great, and it is so great. Just imagine, for your sin, just my own individual sins, the wrath of God poured out upon me is an eternity in hell, in, conscious, in eternal conscious judgment of suffering and pain. That is my, what I deserve. But Jesus took not only my sins, he took your sins, he took the sins of all mankind, the world. And so Jesus, in his humanity, understanding what is about to come before him, asked the Father wills to take the cup away. But notice lastly, fourthly, Jesus' submission to his Father's will. He says, and he prays, 
yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus, in his great sorrow, experiences a trial that could have been a, a temptation to choose his will before God's will. A lot of times we ourselves, when we face even lesser trials, try to choose our own ways instead of God's way. But as a submissive son and servant, Jesus yields here his will to his Father's will. He says, yet, though that's what I will, that I would, if that's, I would like, if it's possible, to rue the cup, yet not my will but yours be done. Throughout Jesus' life and ministry, Jesus always was about his Father's will. He was always about submitting and obeying his Father. In John chapter 6, verse 38, he, we learn this, where he says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus is about, even in the face of, each, of his suffering and death, is about the will of God the Father. And in prayer, Jesus, in the face of his suffering on the cross, entrusts himself to the Father and submits himself to the Father's will. Such is the faith and example of Jesus Christ for us in the midst of our sorrows, in the midst of our distresses, in the midst of our trials and temptations. You know, imagine just simply, if, if your child whom you love comes to you in pain and agony from a fall, and they're just crying, you know, you have very little, little kids, they're just like bawling, you know, they just bump their head, but they're just crying in agony. And they naturally want you to help them. And they come to you, and, they're, and they're, maybe they have, they're scratching, they got a little cut or a little, they're bleeding, and they ask you, oh, daddy, daddy, or mommy, mommy, please help make the pain go away, please, oh, I'm hurting, owie. You will do whatever is in your power to help alleviate and remove their pain, right? And that's just normal. That's what all parents do. But consider this. When the Son of God, in agony, in pain, in great anguish, sought relief from his father, his dad, his father did not take away his son's agony. His father willed that he continue to face the suffering and agony that he was experiencing. And on top of all that, the son willingly suffered that agony. Why? Because of his great love. Because of their love for the world. His love for you and his love for me. I'm ready to just pause right here and just go and worship the Lord. How great the Father's love. How deep the Father's love. How wonderful is God's love and grace towards us. Immediately, in response to uh, Jesus' prayer, it is answered by God. It is answered in, in a particular way. Luke alone, interestingly, records these details in verse 43 to 44. I'll read them for you. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. We learn here that, so, that the Lord responds to his first prayer immediately and sends him an angel from heaven to minister to strengthen him in his agony. God sends ministering angels as, as ministering angels out to administer to his people, and he does so here for his son. 
And the angel's help essentially must have renewed Jesus' strength to endure the cross, to face the suffering. And he, and he renewed his strength to continue trusting in the Lord. And that reflected even in his continual prayer. And as Jesus continues praying, he prays even uh, uh, very fervently, it's described. It's, his prayer is so great that it's, a, it's, it's almost like he's wrestling with the Lord. He's, he's coming to the Lord. And remember, he goes to the Lord and prays us three, at least three times that evening. And it's so great that Luke records it. Remember, this is Dr. Luke, so it's kind of interesting here uh, what he might be, might be describing. Is that Jesus' prayer is so great, it's so fervent, it's so ag- in much agony that it produces sweat that fell down like drops of blood. And, you, and this is always kind of just a, uh, one of those interesting little descriptions that uh, perhaps only Dr. Luke might be, find significant. And many believe that this was a, a medical condition known as hematidrosis. I uh, hope I got that right. It was a rare condition where blood vessels in uh, capillaries, they say, would, uh, around uh, the, the sweat glands uh, would, could burst. And so when you're sweating, in profuse, and especially in intense agony, you're, you're sweating, emotional distress, physical distress, then your sweat might be mixed with blood and it would be like blood coming down. I mean, and that's possible. I don't know we need to be too dogmatic about it. But it also could just simply be that he, w- he was praying so fervently that he was simply sweating. And that it was so profuse in the sweating that he just dropped down like drops of blood. It was just in greater drops or in, um, than just normal uh, tear that would come down his face. But nevertheless, what we see then, whatever the exact cause, Jesus was a man who was experiencing deep felt agony. And he responded in the only way that would help. That is through fervent prayer. Jesus sets the example to his disciples to prayer. And we can learn from Jesus' example. When we too find ourselves in the midst of, of great sorrow, great trials, great, dis- great distress. First of all, like, like Jesus, we can turn to the Father. right? We can turn to the Father and pray. We remember that when we hurt, we turn to our dad, our father. Because he is the one who can be counted on. Secondly, we acknowledge, want to acknowledge his omnipotence and sovereignty, his sovereign will over all things, that if anyone wills to change this matter, it is the Father, and he can do it. I might want to change the matter, but I can't do anything about it. But if God wants to do something about the matter, God can do everything about it. And so that's what we recognize. That. Thirdly, we, we come to him asking him and make the request. Ask him even of what it is in your, upon your heart. Ask him to remove the trial if it is. Ask him for strength in the trial. Ask him to remove. But even as we ask, it's okay to ask. Lord, remove this trial. Father, help me to have some children. Father, help me to find a spouse. Lord, help me to cure, remove this cancer from me. It's okay to ask these things. The Father knows what's bothering you. He knows what weighs your heart. It's you, he would love for you to hear, to, for you to cast your burdens upon Him. But then fourthly, remember as we pray, submit yourself to God's will. Understand that God knows better than me and you. Because God knows better. I can, we can pray, Lord, please remove this from me. Please provide this for me. But yet not what I will, but your will be done, Lord. Because I want to be like Jesus. I want your will to be done because I know that your will is best. And you can trust that our Heavenly Father knows what is best. And he will actively use the circumstances of your life, the trials that you are facing to accomplish that which is good for you. Jesus' example of prayer provided an encouragement then to his disciples to pray. But on that evening... 
disciples would fail to pray as Jesus calls them to do. Nevertheless, we, as we look at this, the disciples' failure to pray, it will provide for us an encouragement for us to pray. And so we'll look at this, and even though it's pretty much similar to, uh, the words are similar to point number one, but we can focus on the, a little bit of the aspect of their failure to pray. We read this in verse 45 to 46. When he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow and said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. As we already mentioned, Matthew and Mark's account record Jesus referred to returning the disciples three times to check on them. And each time he calls them, keep watching and praying. Can you not pray with me for even a little while? He, you know, he kind of rebukes them, reproves them, but he encourages them to pray. But here Luke just simply summarizes it all into these two verses. And instead of praying, he comes and finds, after he prays, he comes to them, and he finds them sleeping. They're sleeping. And it tells, and he, uh, we learn that these disciples are sleeping uh, from sorrow. As, uh, they could have been sleeping from, you know, like many of us, we after a big meal, could be sleeping after a big meal, or digesting. But these disciples were sleeping from sorrow. They were, they were so aware of something that, that was troubling that was about to happen to them. Jesus had revealed to them on that night his betrayal and uh, one of his own impending death. And by this point, they would have known that it was Judas because Judas had already left. But they were suspected. Uh, at least Peter and, and John knew that it was Judas for sure. And they probably told the, the other uh, nine that still remained. But they are weighed with sorrow. They know that Judas is going to probably return soon with uh, uh, the chief priests and scribes, their, their soldiers, to arrest Jesus. And there's going to be a, some kind of conflict that they expect. Jesus asked them to bring swords. So, yeah, maybe it's going to be some fight. And, uh, and so they're, they're weighed down with sorrow. They're, and so they fall asleep. Instead of praying, they sleep. And that's, that's kind of normal human behavior, isn't it? When you're weighed down with something, how do you escape it? Well, you can eat, you can drink coffee like I do, you can go look at the ocean. But a lot of times what we do is we just, we just go take a nap. We just sleep on it, you know? Just sleep is one of those ways where you can sometimes just escape from the burden and find relief uh, through sleep. That's, that's common and natural. But nevertheless, as there was the wrong response in this occasion, they sought comfort in sleep, but Jesus reproves them, and he calls them once again. He goes, why are you sleeping? And like, why are you sleeping? You should not be sleeping right now. This is not a moment to be sleeping. Get up and pray that you may not enter temptation. He repeats that command. Same command, same, same structure, same, immediate, same uh, identical words. Pray that they might not enter into temptation. They, they essentially had underestimated the danger that they were in. Satan was, and was coming to sift them like wheat. And here they are sleeping. He's going to take away their leader, their shepherd. Instead of standing by him, they would all forsake and flee from him. Perhaps if they had prayed as Jesus had instructed, they might not have fallen into temptation as they did. Jesus had told them, though, to pray that they might not enter temptation. Many times, we don't pray, do we? Even though we may be burdened by trials, by distresses, by uh, temptations. It's the reason why we don't pray, and I've you know, thought of it is, is either we don't really know or believe the danger that we're in in those moments. 
when we encounter trials that become temptations, or even temptations alone. We don't understand sometimes. Uh, I had one professor in seminary who kind of wanted, he said to us, and he simply said, I'll paraphrase him, he says, if we truly understood the dangers that we face in this world, we would be men and women who are praying. We would call upon him continually and regularly. It's always stuck with me. But the scriptures tell us that we are in danger. We are in war. The scriptures teach us that we are, uh, we are in a battle, in a spiritual battle. Satan and his forces have you and me in their crosshairs. 1 Peter 5.8 tells us that the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. All of Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 to 20 speak of this, this struggle, not against flesh and blood, but against what Paul says, describes as the rulers, the powers, the world forces of this darkness, the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. These are not weak forces. These are powerful forces, spiritual, invisible forces, mind you, that you cannot see that are at war with you and me. And yet God has given us spiritual armor. He's given us so that we must put it on. And God has given you a spiritual weapon, the sword of the spirit. But you must take it up. And then we are to fight. How do we fight? With prayer. Ephesians 6.18, with uh, the end of that says, with, through all, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Paul is just simply saying what Jesus says, keep watching, be on the alert and pray because the danger is real and the battle is real. Pray that you may not enter into temptation in the face of trials, distresses, burdens that will become a temptation that will cause you to forsake and flee from the Lord. Remember Jesus faithful as he is, is still at the right hand of God the Father, interceding on our behalf, that the faith that God the Father gives will not fail. Nevertheless, let us be men and women in prayer. Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, in contrast to the failure of his disciples to pray, is a lesson for all of us as we face the trials of this life. We learn from Jesus to seek God in prayer, and to submit ourselves to his will. I love just even the, uh, the call to worship that we read in the beginning, the Hebrews 5, 7, and 9. This describes really fitting words to describe what we see here in the Garden of Gethsemane. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he, su which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Jesus on the cross cried out, uh, Jesus here in the garden, and on the cross too, but on the garden this name, cried out to God the Father, and he trusted him to God the to Father. Um, and God heard his prayer. And, though the, and although God, Jesus was a son who deserved, who would have in normal circumstances received from his father anything that he asked, Jesus, in submission to the will of the Father, in obedience, endured all the sufferings. He learned obedience through his willingness to suffer that which was laid before him. And in that conf confirmation of his perfect life, having been made perfect, being made complete, that is, it, Jesus lived 
two, from beginning to end of his life, lived a perfect, righteous life. He became to everyone who believes in him, everyone who obeys his command to believe upon him, he becomes a source of our salvation, our forgiveness of sins. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And when we, while we learn to imitate his obedience in the face of suffering, we will also grow in Christ-likeness. We'll grow in our love for Christ, for how, in, how he endured for our salvation. Jesus' prayer of submission to the Father for our sake causes us to pray not only that we might not enter temptation, but to pray in worship of God. Don't you want to just pray and off tell God, even in this, as you hear what Jesus endured? Oh, Lord, thank you for Jesus because he endured the suffering for me, for my sins. He willingly chose to submit himself to God's plan, to endure the consequences of having the sins of the world being cast upon him, to be made sin, who knew, he who knew no sin, to be judged with the infinite wrath of God for that sin, to be forsaken of God on the cross, and to suffer alone while all his disciples would flee, leaving him to die. This is Jesus. And we see it reflected in his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. What a great Savior we have. And we can turn to him because he understands what you and I are going through. We can turn to him in prayer. I'll leave you just with three kind of questions. I know a lot of you have discussion groups during the week uh, just about the sermon. So maybe that will encourage you as you reflect upon uh, the message this week. Number one, just how's your prayer life in general? And how are you doing in resisting temptation in life? And as we looked at our passage, there's probably a correlation between the two. Number two, as you face trials, suffering or temptation, how are you responding with prayer to the Father? And do you turn to God the Father when you're facing trials? Do you not? And, and then why or why not? All of us face trials in life. Maybe some of you are facing trials right now. Is, are you responding by turning to Him, by praying? And thirdly, what, what do you think will happen if you fail to consistently pray to God? If, if we're like disciples and fail to pray, what will happen? What, what could potentially happen in your life? And think about that. Talk about that. We'll discuss it with others. Or just reflect upon it with the, before the Lord. But we thank God for Jesus Christ, who set us an example to pray, who turned to the Father in the midst of the face of great agony and suffering. May we learn from Him, worship Him, praise Him, and may we do the same whenever as we face trials. Let's uh, respond with the final song.